What is your name? I mean, when you first meet someone for the first time, you get asked lots of questions. Where are you from? What's your major? What do you like to do for fun? But more often than not, what is your name is the question that comes first of all. Your name is that first bit of information you share with other people. Your name is the first clue to solving the riddle, this is who I am. The shape and the sound of our name makes a powerful first impression. Countless studies have been done about this. The power of names and the meaning of names, what they say about us or what people think that they say about us. This is not just true about our birth names. It's not just true about our surnames. It extends to the names that we call others and the names that others call us. Punk, jock, slut, stud, goody two-shoes, whatever. Name-calling affects the way that we see ourselves, and it affects the way that we see other people. Naming is powerful business, which is why bullying is such a big deal. It's powerful. Our names have the power to shape people's perceptions of us, but they don't just shape perceptions. Our names have the, course, or have the power to actually set the course of our very lives. Another silly example, perhaps, but studies have shown that people whose uh, last names start with the letter A, find more business, more business success than people whose names might start with W, X, Y, or Z. It's not just because of the association that we have with the letter A and A pluses. In group settings, we're often organized uh, alphabetically. And if your last name starts with A, you're often at the top of the list. And people see a name at the top of the list and they're like, oh, subliminally, they're better than the people beneath them. Or they're leaders. They come first. We remember things more at the beginning than we do at the middle and the end, so your name will stay in somebody's memory longer if your last name starts with A. You're more likely to be selected by a client, perhaps like you're in a list of contractors for cleaning or towing, whatever it may be. Right? You're going to pick from page one. You're not going to flip through to page four. Again, it's silly, and it might sound unfair, and it is. But it's true. Our names matter. They have the power to shape people's perceptions of us and in some ways the power to alter reality. But they're not just powerful. Our names are also personal. They're always personal. Each of you is a person with a body and a soul unlike anyone else's. It's uniquely yours. There's nobody quite like you. There's only one person who will ever get to live your life. Only one. Though our stories may overlap, and though our stories may have certain things in common, there is no story exactly like yours or exactly like mine. And each of these stories has a name. John Minor, Hannah Taylor, Steve Carlson, Michael DeGraff, your name. These names tell a story. Your name tells a story filled with drama and lots of feelings 
Lots of thoughts. We identify strongly with our names because they hold or contain these stories. In a strange way, they hold, contain, reveal us. Right? Our very selves. As one person has put it, our name is an important part of the baggage that we associate with ourselves. They reflect on us. We identify with our name so strongly, in fact, that we can hear our name whispered in a crowded room full of talking people. Psychologists call this the cocktail effect. Right? The reason you can hear your name in a whisper over a noisy cocktail party is because your name means so much to you. So much that the mere mention of it catches your attention in ways that other stimuli won't. Your name matters. Today we're looking at another question that God asks us. In tonight's story, we see a man wrestling with God. We hear God asking him this question, what is your name? And then we watch that man walk into the sunlight of a new day with a new identity. Now, in order to understand the significance of these events, we need to know the man in question. There are, I imagine, 101 ways that you could organize a sermon like this, but here's what I want to do tonight. I want to look at Jacob's past. I want to look at Jacob's present, and I want to look at Jacob's future. And as we get to know this man and his story, and in some ways, as you reflect on your own past, present, and future... I hope to convince you of this truth. That in order to receive God's blessing, we need to come clean about who we really are. I'll say that again. In order for us to receive God's blessing, we need to come clean about who we really are. That really is the main point of tonight's sermon. I'm I'm starting with it up front. But I hope you don't just hear me say this. I hope that it sort of crystallizes uh, in your mind and in your heart as we look at Jacob's story. And again, as you think through your own. Well, first, let's look at Jacob's past. Okay, when we meet Jacob in chapter 32, we meet a man with a past. Every time you meet somebody, whether it's here in the Interfaith Center or across the, the street in the Davis Center... We're playing kickball, we're eating in the, the dining hall, we're meeting someone in your dorm room. Every single time you meet somebody, you are meeting a person with a past. And that's true, uh, it's true that in order to understand what is present before you, you need to understand the past. That's not just true of current events, right? That's true of people too. You don't really know somebody until you know their story, where they've come from. For for many of you, tonight's the first time you've ever met this guy, Jacob. Tonight's the the night. You met him, right? Well, when we meet him, like we did in verse 6, we meet a man who's greatly afraid and distressed. Why is that? Well, he's afraid and distressed because the last time that he saw his brother Esau... Esau swore, I'm going to murder you. The last time he saw his brother, his brother promised, I'm going to kill you. So he's rightfully afraid. Esau is waiting for, with 400 men, which is a small army, and he's coming to meet you. What's all this about? Okay, what's going on? 
Well, the backstory, Jacob's backstory, really goes back to Genesis chapter 25. Jacob and Esau were born on the same day to the same woman. Okay, they're twin brothers. And it seems that these twin brothers have been fighting uh, with each other from the very beginning. Like, even from the time in the womb, brawling, right? Esau comes out first, right? He's the firstborn, and he gets all the rights and the privileges that come with being the firstborn son. Jacob comes out second, holding on to Esau's heel. The Bible says that Esau was a really hairy kid. So his mom and dad gave him the name Esau, which literally means hairy. Not H-A-R-R-Y, H-A-I-R-Y, okay? That's his name, Harry, Esau, okay? Jacob's name literally means he grabs the heel, or if you like for short, he cheats, cheater. So two boys, one named Harry, H-A-I-R-Y, and the other, cheater, and they're like, thanks, Mom and Dad. Great names. As an aside, can you imagine what it was like for Jacob to like, put his name on his homework? Cheater at the top of like every page. Or if you go out on a date. Hi, I'm Cheater. Nice to meet you. Want to go on a date? No? Right? Needless to say, these names shaped people's perceptions of them. Right? If you introduce yourself as Cheater... People are going to think about you in a certain light, and they altered or affected their reality, right? How they lived their life. You know, many years later, when Isaac, their father, was dying, Isaac said to Esau, Prepare for me my favorite meal, bring it to me to eat so that I might eat, and my soul may bless you before I die. Well, Esau leaves his father's side, and he does what his dad asked him to do. He gets his bow, he gets his arrow, he's like, I'm going hunting, I'm making dad his favorite meal. But here's what Jacob does when Esau's out. Jacob gets in the kitchen. He starts to whip up some goat souffle. And he goes into his brother's room and he raids his closet and he puts his brother's clothes on so as to smell like his brother. And you know all those goat skins? You know the goats are in the souffle? Well, he takes the skins and he puts them on his arms and on his neck. Remember? His brother's kind of hairy. And he walks into the tent where his dad is. He says, hey dad, time to eat. His dad says, who are you? What's your name? Jacob answers, I'm Esau. I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat that your soul may bless me. Well, Isaac replies, please come near that I might feel you to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And Jacob goes near and his father is confused. He says, the voice is Jacob's, but... The hands are the hands of Esau as he feels the coat skin. Must have been a really hairy guy. Okay, Isaac says, bring the food over so I can eat it and bless you. And Jacob does that. Isaac says, lean over. Give your father a kiss. Jacob leans over and Isaac catches wind of Esau's clothes on Jacob's back. It's like, it's weird. Sounds like Jacob, but smells like Esau, cooks like Esau, His hairy hands like Esau must be Esau. And so he places his hands on Jacob's head and he gives Jacob and not Esau the blessing of the firstborn. When Esau walks in, he goes, what the hell is going on? What's going on? Who are you? His father asks. He says, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. 
And his father starts shaking. He says, well, who did I just bless then? And he's like, it's your other son, the cheater, the deceiver. Now the dead man, because I'm going to kill you. Right? In furious rage, he says, look, dad's going to die in a couple of days. But once he's in the grave, you're next. I'm coming after you. I'm going to kill you. And this is the last time Jacob saw Esau. And it sort of catapults us into tonight's story. Because in the meantime, after this episode and leading up to this, Jacob continues to trick and to deceive people left and right. He tricks his brother. He tricks his father. He tricks his father-in-law. Like, this is a habit. This is a lifestyle. He's living up to his name. And conflict is constantly following him wherever he goes, right? Forever in his wake. One ruined relationship after the other. And this brings us to point number two, Jacob's present. When we encounter Jacob uh, like we did tonight, we meet a man greatly afraid and distressed. You see that in verse 7. Jacob has just fled his father-in-law, Laban. Okay? That conflict is now behind him. But another conflict awaits him. His brother stands before him with a militia of 400 men. And it seems by all accounts that Esau is ready to make good on his promise. I'm going to kill you. Jacob is a dead man. Or so he thinks, right? The sins of his past have finally caught up with him. The sins of his past have finally caught up with him, and his whole life seems to be falling uh, apart before his very eyes. Right? In this moment, Jacob is forced to divide his property, to divide the people that are with him, thinking, you know, if Esau attacks this group, well, then maybe this group can get away safe and survive. He's seeing it all get pulled apart. And as he is doing this, as he is doing sort of the pulling apart, as he's watching his life unravel, he lifts up a prayer. The prayer of a desperate man. And it goes something like this. You can look in verses 9, 10, 11, 12. God, I'm not a good man. I'm not a good man. I've blown it. My life is falling apart. Please help me. And I, I imagine him closing his eyes as he prays, you know, and then opening one to kind of look around and be like, dang it, it's not going to work. Because in the paragraph that follows, Jacob does what he's always done. In the 11th hour, Jacob starts devising ways that he can trick his brother, ways that he can cheat him, deceive him, sort of butter him up. It's like, I got this idea. Send these groups in waves. Drove after drove. And when Esau sees him and he asks, what's going on? It's like, it's a gift from your brother. Jacob's coming right behind you. Thinking like, maybe after the third and fourth and fifth wave, Esau's just going to be like, ah, bygones are bygones. Come here. Right, this is his plan. Verses 13 to 23 you essentially have Jacob packing up his entire life into a bunch of moving trucks. Boxing things up, 
putting the tape on him, putting him in the truck. Truck after truck. All of his belongings, and not just his belongings, but his family too, all packed up. And then Jacob pulls down the giant U-Haul doors, you know, and he slaps the back, and they all start to drive off into the distance. One truck after the next. Everything he has and everything he loves driving off into the distance. And he alone is left. All alone. In the darkness of an empty house. Can you imagine what might be going through his mind at that moment? Can you feel a little bit of what Jacob might be feeling. This brings us now to verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. At least he thought he was alone. Because look what happens next. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Someone else shows up. Someone else is present. And Jacob wasn't really looking for anyone, but someone, it seems, was looking for him. A man or someone with the appearance of a man, right, starts wrestling with Jacob. And you kind of have to wonder, who started this fight? Was it this guy or was it Jacob? I'm guessing it was probably Jacob. You know, Jacob kind of reminds me of some character, like, played by Ben Affleck or Matt Damon in a movie set in Boston like The Town, right? He's a fighter. He's a cheater. He loves to brawl. He's used to winning, right? That's kind of how I imagine this guy. But here, right, he finally has met his match, right? Jacob cannot cheat or overpower this one. He's been able to do it his whole life, right, to cheat and to win. But finally, he's come upon somebody. That's not going to work. And he tussles into dawn, he doesn't know it yet, but he's wrestling God. And God is okay with being wrestled. And this is kind of an amazing fact. It's kind of a, a cool thing to think about. God, who could crush Jacob at any moment if he wanted to, allows Jacob to crawl and to claw and to cry all over him. He allows that. God allows Jacob to wrestle with him. God allows us to wrestle with him. But though he permits us to wrestle with him, we cannot wrestle forever. Something in the end has got to give. And in this case, it was Jacob's hip. Now, as one commentator put it, with severe mercy, God dislocates Jacob's hip. The wrestler's pivot of strength, the thing that he relied on, God dislocates it with the touch of his finger and his natural strength shriveled and Jacob was left prayerfully clinging to God and asking for grace. Y'all, which is better? 
To wrestle or to walk away. To quit or to hang on for mercy. Jacob chooses the latter. Let me go for the day is broken, says God. I will not let you go unless you bless me. This brings us to the question that God asks. What is your name? Hey, what's your name? It's probably a little awkward silence. Jacob finally speaks up. Cheater. My name is Cheater. That's who I am. That's who I've become. God answers, not anymore. See, no longer will you be called Jacob. No longer will you be called Cheater. But from now on, you'll be known as Israel. You're cheater no more. God gives Jacob a new name. God gives the cheater a new identity. Before we unpack the significance of this renaming right, for Jacob and his future, let's make sure we understand what just happened. Okay, Jacob prayed in verses 9 to 11, and God heard that prayer. Graciously, unexpectedly, God shows up to help in verse 25. God wants to bless Jacob, and God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. But here's the deal. In order to receive God's blessing, we've got to acknowledge who we really are. Warts and all. What's your name? Who are you? We've got to be able to answer that. We've got to be able to tell the truth. Author Trevor Hudson writes this, Jacob reminds us that if we want to experience inner change, we must tell God who we truly are, willingly revealing all ourselves. We need to acknowledge in God's presence those parts of our lives that need transformation. Revealing is critical to healing. Revealing is critical to healing. If you want to receive God's blessing, you've got to know yourself. And instead of masking and hiding your sins and your failures, you need to admit them. You've got to know where you hurt, and you need to take responsibility for where you have hurt others. Think of it this way. There are lots of nursing students who are not here tonight because I think they're taking or getting ready to take an exam. But you don't have to be a nursing major to get this, right? This is intuitive to us all. You see a patient, right? A nurse sees a patient who has appendicitis. And the nurse asks, hey, are you in pain? He says, nothing. The nurse presses on the stomach. Does this hurt? Quiet. Does this hurt? Quiet. And the person leaves the nurse's office, none the better. Because he kept mum. Well, another patient steps in with appendicitis, and the nurse asks if she's in pain. She says, yes. Where? Right here. Does this hurt? Ah, yeah, it hurts a lot. Does this hurt? Oh, it stings. 
You can do something with that. The nurse can do something with that. Because it's honest about where the pain is, honest where the hurt is, that person can walk out of there healed. Can walk out taken care of. Look, again, if we want to experience inner change, we must tell God who we truly are. We need to acknowledge in God's presence those parts of our lives that need transformation, that need healing. You be honest about the time you cheated on your exam. Be honest about the time you cheated on your boyfriend or girlfriend. Your addiction to porn. Your addiction to alcohol. Your eating disorder. Right? Your sex abuse. Your outbursts of anger. Your anxiety and depression. Whatever it may be, revealing is critical to healing. What you reveal, he can heal. This brings us to our third and final point, Jacob's future. Jacob's future. We see a man in the dark all alone, but he doesn't leave that way. The story ends with him walking into the brightness of a new day, not with a strut in his step, but with a limp. Jacob's been humbled. He's been humbled, but he's also been lifted up. You see, Jacob is no longer defined by his parents. He's no longer defined by his parents. He's no longer defined by his peers. He is not what other people call him. And he is not defined by his painful past. God has given him a new name. God has given him a new identity. And that new identity has the power not just to shape perception, but to really set the course of one's life. And you see this as you read on. I encourage you to do it. Look what he does with Esau next. Instead of war, there's reconciliation. Imagine the difference, y'all, it would make if instead of everybody calling you cheater, they called you champion. Instead of worthless, precious. Instead of ugly, beautiful. Instead of awful, awesome. Look, it would make a big difference. It really does matter what you were called. It really does matter what name you live under. God can heal what you reveal. He has the power to give you a new name and a new identity. You do not have to be what other people call you. You are not your sinful, shameful past. You are what God says you are. And in Jesus, God calls you my child. You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. Listen to what it says in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Well, for Christians, this is a future reality. 
It's a future reality that breaks in today. Those who cling to God, those who seek his blessing, sinners like you and me and Jacob, right? We can find a new identity. God wants to adopt you as sons and daughters of the king. This is a new identity and a new reality. We get to live out, not just then. We can start living out of that identity now. We get to wear his last name. We get to wear his last name. And we get to enjoy all the benefits that come with having that last name. We did not earn this identity. And we did not create it. This is not like us on Facebook creating a new profile page. Right? This is not man-made. This is God-given. And we receive it when we come openly and honestly and without pretense. Will the names of the past or a name that belongs to a glorious future define the person who you are today? What will it be? Will it be the names of a past or will it be the name of a glorious future? God is asking you all tonight, what is your name? Let's pray.